In the latest Freedom in the World report, Ireland received a freedom rating of 97 out of 100. This is impressive given that 37% of the world's population live in countries that are deemed to be not free according to the same measures. Hello, my name is Stephen Norton and you are very welcome to the Good Boss Bad Boss podcast episode 13. Thank you for joining us as we explore the good, the bad and the ugly behaviour of bosses. This podcast seeks to entertain, educate and hopefully change some behaviour to make working life better for all. Since the proclamation of independence, Ireland has had 32 general elections and is facing into its 33rd on the 8th of February. Many politicians have thrown their hat in the ring and want to let the voters decide their fate. So this month, I decided to sit down with a first-time general election candidate to find out what that is like. Deirdre Geraghty-Smith is a local councillor in my area and she graciously took time out of campaigning to talk to us about political life. We don't talk about policies or agendas or manifestos. No, this is a look behind the scenes to see how it all works, who the bosses are, where the drive to get elected comes from, and what lessons bosses can learn from politics. And before I get accusations of bias thrown in my direction, I'd like to say that I have asked other politicians to be guests, and they never responded, so I really am extra grateful to Deirdre for her time. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Deirdre Geraghty Smith, you're very welcome to the Good Boss, Bad Boss podcast. An, ele- very much. an election special, no less. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope it's a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. Look, I've, I've wanted to talk to you about this because it's a unique opportunity to find out what it's like to run for election, not policies or any of that stuff. Actually, just what, what's it like to, to have that as a job? And who are the bosses when it comes to this? Because I was thinking about, you know, the bosses could be the man on the street. It could be the Taoiseach, it could be, you know, you name it, it's, it's, it's whoever you want it to be. And I just want to get under the hood of that. So I'm going to ask you plenty of questions about this. Uh, but if you start giving me political answers, I'll absolutely stop you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, it is, it's an interesting business. Um, there's sort of, there's many bosses and no bosses all at the same time. So it is, it's quite interesting. Um, it's quite complex. It's not like applying for a job in another career where, you know, there might be sort of a linear career path or, or something. Um, you're often quite self-led, but uh, yeah. it is interesting. So absolutely, yeah, no, looking forward to, to the chat and going through so how we ended up where we are. Tell us a bit about <coughs> yourself first. This is the Rosa Tralee moment. So <laughs> Who are you and where have you come from? So I am a councillor on Meath County Council at the moment. I was elected in 2019. Um, I had run previously in 2014, unsuccessfully then. Um, I was in my 20s, so it was probably for the best then. Um, yeah. But I've, I've been a community activist um, living in Meath for kind of at least 15 years or so. And I suppose it's through sort of being involved in community organisations that you realise that if you want to progress things on behalf of those organisations, that you really need um, to have yeah. that voice and that role within either a council chamber or in the Dáil to be able to affect change and ultimately get funding and get projects across the line um, to the benefit of the community. So it's always been with a community focus. Um, but so, for example, I'll just give you some examples would be I'm on the board of a credit union. I've sat on the board of um, local management companies um, organising local parades you know the the type of things that um, people in the community um, come to expect but the type of things that make your local community what it is Um, so that's very important to me and I try to bring that to my work in the council as well 
It's funny you, you talk about people getting involved in the local <laughs> community. I was only having a conversation this morning about it, about it. It's always the same people who get involved in the local community. You know, it's usually the same 20 people who turn up. <laughs> what's what's going on with that? Why why don't more people get involved? Because, I mean, Meath in particular with, with Dunshockland, Rathoth, Ashburn, mm. like, I mean, they're massive communities mm. now. And and it's still the same few people you'd see at a meeting. Yeah, there's there's truth to that. There's you know there's always the same people that that are. I suppose there's there's always people that are particularly community driven, but equally so, there's a lot of time commitments on people these days. I mean, life is very complex, you know, and particularly in this area, as you'll know yourself, people are commuting. The vast majority of people in Meath actually we've the largest proportion of commuters in the country, so people leaving the county for work, and that means that they commute for a longer distance. So they're home later in the evening. They're time pressed looking after kids. So it's very, it's very difficult for people to get involved. They've limited time, I would imagine. Um, and so I suppose it is always the same people that get involved. But it is good because that builds a community network as well of people that you can rely on. But it's the same in any job, Stephen. You know, in any big company, you'll always have the same five people on the social committee organising the events. So yeah, it's a it's similar true, idea. It's true, it's true. And, and you're not from Mead, so you're from Dublin. Yeah. Originally, no. So I, I grew up in Dublin till my late teens and then I moved out to Meath and my parents moved out to Meath. So my family home is in outside Dunboyne. It's in rural Dunboyne. And my sisters have all bought houses in sort of Dunshockland and Boyne area. Um, I'm married to a screen man. So family is all very much um, now Meath. And uh, I suppose I've effectively at this stage now, I'm half my life in Meath. So I'm naturalised, fully naturalised. Naturalised, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get your official papers. <laughs> yeah. What was the what was the spark for you? Where where did it all start? That activism, mm. you know, was it something that was there when you were a kid? Funny that you say that. I was actually talking to somebody about this the other day. We were laughing about it. So my first foray into activism was when I was ten. So okay. I went to a primary school near Blanchetown Shopping Centre where it was being built at the time and I was very concerned about where the animals were going to live and how their habitats were being destroyed by all this building. So a few of us in the class set up uh, a wildlife club and we used to fundraise, we used to get Ainani Launa in to speak to us yeah. and people like this. So it was actually quite funny, but we did do um, a lot of fundraising and I suppose I've always had that in me, sort of awareness of the wider picture and yeah. what can I do to make things better? I know that was only a small example, but 2011 was a turning point for me when I saw what was going on in obviously the global economy, the Irish economy, and I felt that younger people needed to have a say in that. Um, I was in my 20s and I just thought I can either emigrate here or I can get involved and that's what I chose to do. So I put myself, got yeah. involved in a political party and uh, put myself what, what were you do? What were you working at? Or where did you, where did you go was, to college? What was that? I studied uh, business and economics in Trinity and I then went into accountancy so I worked for two big four firms. Um, accountancy was not the life for me. So I then went back and studied um, a master's in political communication and oh. then worked in the Dáil for a number of years. And then since then, I've worked in business consultancy um, and I'm in the private sector. So you have sector. a bit of experience in the Dáil already. What's, what's it like in there? When it's they a, close the doors, yeah. what did they not tell us about? <laughs> they, well, it might come as a surprise to people, but they actually work very, very hard. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't always come across in the media, I think. But no, they're incre the vast majority of TDs are incredibly hard workers and very dedicated to their jobs. Um, obviously, they differ in how they do that, but the hours are very, very long. It's very demanding and they, they really do work around the clock um, seven days a week. But it's a very interesting, fast-paced environment. I would say that no two days are the same. 
the issues are you know complex broad ranging um so yeah it's a very interesting environment to work in i have to say and what i learned from it is you know that you just learn so many skills you know to and you just applied for a job you know within there you know what i mean it was advertising you applied and interviewed and no, that kind of thing no i was or? i was um involved with the party at the time right. and i was involved with setting up a professional network within the party at the time and a job arose and um, I suppose I was, I wouldn't say earmarked for it, but I was approached about the job. Would I be interested in considering it because it was known that I had done this master's and that I was in okay, the market, yeah. I suppose, for a job yeah. at the time. But no, it wasn't It wasn't a specific job that was um, advertised at the time, no. You spent how many years doing that? I was five years in the dull, yeah. And what would you say the lessons of, of you know, kind of being one step away from being a TD, I suppose, in, in the sense that you're getting to see everything, but the responsibility isn't on you in that, in that yeah, same way? Yeah, I, I think you're you're at the coal face as well, because I learned, I suppose, the, the types of issues that people are faced with, and some of them are the most horrific circumstances, you mm. know. And you may not think it, you know, people often, it they seem that they have perfect lives, but when you scratch beneath the surface, they're struggling with horrendous things. I suppose so you learn how to deal with those issues and how to try to progress issues on behalf of people because the system a lot of the time it's about navigating what is a very complex system and ultimately that's you know one of the roles of a TD is obviously to legislate but the other side is the advocacy and it's about helping people to make the system to work better for them and that's really what I learned so invaluable skills that you can kind of take to other uh, roles as well dealing with people I mean is the fundamental skill set that you pick up in the job because it's all about relationships and it's all about dealing with um, people in the real world you know who come who come in to your office every day with with challenges and and you said you're a county councillor now so uh, how long did it take to become a county councillor this is your third election this is my third. So this is a, I'm running in the general election at the moment. Yeah. Um, but this is my third election. So I ran in 2014. Um, I was 27 then, and um, unsuccessfully. And then I uh, there was I think I put in maybe a two or three year campaign before that. So I was probably yeah. campaigning from 2012, say. Um, and then I was successful then when I ran again in 2019. So before 2011, mm. you weren't involved at all, really. You were just a, a, a newspaper yeah. reader. Yeah, of politics, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, I was more concerned with playing sports, to be honest, and yeah. music and things like that. So, like any normal young person going to college and working, um, no, I would have, I would have read the newspaper and you know been very aware of um, current affairs. But no, no family involvement or anything like that, um, other than my granny <laughs> in a different area. Right, and and twenty eleven was the mm. was the was the time. Mm. What were you seeing there that that really kind of pushed you on? I just felt at the time, if you look back, twenty eleven was very different than it is today. It the, politics was very different, but. I just believed and I still believe that um, younger people are underrepresented in national politics and local politics, but particularly national politics. And I felt that I had a particular skill set, obviously from what I had studied, but also the passion that I had and my local um, activism and experience Mm. that I could bring. I felt that I needed to step up and make some kind of impact on this, try to bring something to the table here. Whether it was just being involved in a party or whether it was running, I was just determined to make an impact and to get involved. So it was really... I mean, I was looking around at the time and seeing all of my friends emigrating, seeing, you know, the vast majority of people that I trained with and studied emigrating. There was very few jobs. Accountancy was literally the only sector at the time that was hiring. There was no jobs when I graduated college. So it was a challenging time. And like that, I'm not a hurler on the ditch. I can't sit idly by. I just can't. So my husband always uh, calls me a busybody, but (laughs) I think (laughs) I like to think of it as activism. Yeah. (laughs) And that first election wasn't a success. 
It wasn't. No, no. And you learn a lot from losses as well. I mean, I have yeah. to say that I, I learned a lot about resilience, personal resilience um, and just about leadership, about organizing teams um, about, I suppose, fundraising, about what it really takes to run uh, an organization, because you're very much, um, I wouldn't say like a franchise operation, but you're running your own small operation yeah. and it's, it's up to you to lead you you set the tone you set the pace you set mm. the agenda and and you build supporters and teams around you um and i learned an awful lot about that and i think those are skills that you can take with you into the private sector or into any any facet of life as well and that moment where you don't mm. win yeah what did that feel like it was my birthday actually the day that i lost oh, <laughs> lovely so yeah it was a happy birthday to me no look I mean, I was disappointed. I felt at the time that I had a good chance at winning. But I think politics is as much about learning to lose and picking yourself up and going again if you believe in why you're doing it. I didn't take it overly personally, but I was so disappointed for my team as well because they really believed in what I was doing and what I was trying to do as well. So I suppose there's an element where you just feel you've let people down that supported you because it was kind of 500 odd people who voted for me and I kind of felt that I was was disappointed. I couldn't represent them in the end. But you're disappointed but then you move on you know I I decided at that time that I was going to go again you know I was going to give it another shot and if I'd say if I hadn't got elected last year I may have said that's it yeah (laughs) and so 500 votes the first time Mm. second time you go through the same campaign so you you know what you're getting into this time yeah yeah and 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 it's a tough old slog so there's knocking on doors there's there's the the whole kind of you know give me your vote and I'll do something different and then you win what's that feel like Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, it was it was brilliant. But it's funny. I, I approached the second run with from a, from a different perspective, in that I was I was a lot more relaxed about it. I guess I was I was five years older, um, but I was a lot more relaxed about it. And I had, I suppose, I had the experience of a previous run to bring to that, and I understood that you know. If you're if people are saying things about you online, it's not personal. You know, you learn resilience and you just shake that stuff off. Whereas maybe previously I wouldn't have. I would have been would, more would concerned. Would people say things at councillor level? Oh yeah. Would oh they? yeah. Oh they do. Yeah. Yeah. God, yeah. people are assholes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's, I mean, at this day, like I said, it it doesn't really bother me. Most of the time, I read stuff that people say and I just laugh. You know, I kind of think you don't know me. You know, you yeah. don't know what drives me. And and if they bothered to pick up the phone to me, I'd be more than happy to chat them through you know the specifics of my viewpoint on things but the vast majority you just ignore it you know it's just noise we always have to remember and i know this is going out on the internet and this is where people Mm. but the internet does bring every village idiot together you know what i mean it gives them a platform as well so and it's quite anonymous and you have to try and pick the gold out of you know all the dross as well so you know Mm. yeah you definitely can't take it personally it's a good for you know it's a great forum i think to give people a voice and you can see that even if you look in the middle east you know with the kind of arab spring and that kind of thing I think it has been really important and it's been a sort of an emancipator in certain ways for, for groups of people who maybe previously were sort of shut out of traditional media platforms and things like that. So that is important. But there is an element where I think it has, and I'm not speaking from my own personal perspective because it doesn't bother me what people say about me, but I think that there is an element where trolling and that has to be regulated. I think social media has gone too far and does need to be regulated. Self-regulation is not working in no, my view. No. So I think that's something that needs to be addressed and probably will be over time. The problem with self-regulation is everybody thinks they're right. That's so they, they, mm. they absolutely will go, yeah, of course I believe in regulation. Yeah. Just I don't need to be regulated yes. because what I'm saying is right. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the unfortunate yeah. thing. So you're, you're a county councillor now. Mm. What's a typical working week for a county councillor? 
a busy one. Yeah, it's a busy week. Because you have um, a day job too. I do. I have a very busy day job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yes, it's it's a challenge. I suppose the challenge can be managing your work. Well, there's no work-life balance for a county councillor. I'll, I'll say that straight up. Um, you don't have work-life balance. It's just all work. It's how I manage the work-work balance of my two jobs, which is my day job and obviously my county council role. And I'm very lucky at the moment that I have um, a, an amazing employer who's been fantastic in terms of granting me the flexibility that I need to attend things like council meetings. So, for example, um, once a month, you'll have a, a council meeting that will typically go on for five or six or seven hours. Uh, how long is a piece what? of String. yeah um is, how many people die during that oh my god <laughs> it's, it's horrendous a, it is it's it's a long process now you can walk in and out of your meetings and get a cup of tea if you need to but you're debating i tell my clients that meetings shouldn't last more than 45 minutes <laughs> <laughs> well i'd probably be in agreement with that but the agenda alone oh is, is sometimes 200 pages for the council so it's it's quite lengthy um, what time does it start at one o'clock in the day, which is a challenge for people, right. new people coming into politics, because if you yeah. know you are in a nine to five job, the vast majority of people can't get time off and just say to their employer, I'm sorry, but I'm going to sod off for the yeah. afternoon and go to sit in a council chamber. So um, I'm lucky in that respect, but um, it is a cha- it is a challenge. So, I mean, on the typical days where you have a council meeting, your day is probably 18 to 20 hours long because you're doing probably the guts of a day's work. Yeah. And then you're in a council chamber for five, six, seven hours, which you also have to prepare for. You don't just arrive and sit in a meeting. You have yeah. to prepare for that. So then you would have also once a month a, a municipal district meeting. So that's a meeting of the councillors in an in individual local electoral area. And that's where your councillors meet with the officials to go through issues pertinent to that particular area. And that can be really granular, like roads, you know, that need resurfacing mm. or particular street lights, you know, that might be out, that kind of thing. It's a good opportunity to really go through the issues in detail. And, and actually that's interesting. So you have kind of uh, council officials or council technicians or engineers mm-hmm. and that. And yeah. and they would be kind of given recommendations for we need to do this that do you kind of get to say well well no I don't think you should do that we should do this no very much it's a collaborative it's collaborative approach so the engineers obviously operationalize things but we as councillors would sort of I suppose oversee or maybe approve particular projects or particular actions that are proposed so the officials might bring things to us and say look we want to undertake a large body of works here and if we say no we're voting against that you know it may not occur so it's kind of there's a sort of an oversight function to it from a councillor's perspective but equally so you can say to you know you can speak to the officials and the engineers and say look there's a real problem in this particular area we need this addressed and you can try and work out a a work plan to try and get that fixed and where does the do you get to do you have a budget as councillors as a group do you kind of have a budget to spend or does that money, you know, when you decide to go after mm. a project, does somebody else have to figure out where the money comes from? No, no, you do have budgets. And yearly there is an annual budget meeting and the budget process is, so councillors have two very broad functions. Um, one is to um, design the county development plan and to feed into that. And the second then is to set the budget um, every year. So my grouping, for example, um, has led the council for the first time in 10 years. So we've had the opportunity to actually set the budget right. um, and to directly feed into that budget that, that's brought before the council so we did that this year and we had some interesting chats with the count with the council officials as we tried to get that budget through so it is an arbitrary process where it's to yeah. and froing and you're looking for emphasis in a particular area and then the council approves that at a big very long meeting and um, usually in around october so that's been done and then that sets kind of your roads budget your you yeah. know your 
budgets for various areas like playgrounds, things like this. Um, in addition to that, there's also um, national schemes that can be tapped into and drawn down at local authority level that will then you know, go to fund particular projects as well. And is there a huge amount of, mm. so you, you have meetings weekly, long meetings mm. <laughs> weekly. What's the prep time for, the, for these things? Like, does it, is it taken up every evening or...? Um, no, it, I mean, you do usually spend maybe an evening, but it could be three or four hours of preparing, you know, if yeah. you have a motion in and you want to speak on aspects, you're going through the agenda and you're seeing, you know, what, what issues are coming up or what motions are coming up that you need to prepare for, or if you want to write speeches or, you know, it, you might be speaking to the media um, afterwards and you're writing press releases. Um, so there is, there's a good bit of preparation for it, but the vast majority of your week would actually be taken up with, when you're a councillor, you are all, also appointed to a number of committees and boards. So I probably sit on about eight or nine different boards outside of the council as well and I have to attend those meetings and they yeah. would occur during the evenings during the week as well so you prepare for those and that would be typically you know I sit on three boards of management of schools and um, yeah. the board of a credit union all of that kind of and when you're a member of a board um, there's a huge oversight function so you have to have done your homework and know what's going on <laughs> in yeah, order to be able yeah, to contribute yeah. so there's it's that kind of thing and then attending local events meeting people following up on people's personal reps and personal cases and concerns so yeah that i hope that and would you have you. many of those personal mm. meetings where people are coming and go i need your help yeah and, yeah you know would, would that on a typical month how many people would you end up seeing um it depends a lot of people actually contact you online or they ring you as opposed right. to meeting again people are time pressed as well i'm i make myself available um weekly i have clinics every saturday um to meet with people who want to meet me but the vast majority of people are happy to just contact you through either social media or email or phone um but you would follow up on cases it can vary i mean some some weeks you might have you know a handful of cases and some weeks you might have you know 40 or 50 people contacting really? me about particular issues. It just depends. It really depends, yeah. yeah. So a very, very, very full workload. Very. <laughs> it's never dull. And to, just for the crack then, you decided, well, sure, we'll run for the national election as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this this was uh, this election, for those of you who don't know, this is the, the national election for the Irish Parliament or the Dáil. How many seats are available? So we have a multi-seat constituency sort of um, makeup in Ireland, um, and they're geographically defined. And um, this is obviously the Meath constituency, and there's three seats available here. So it's it's not a lot of seats. It's mm. very competitive. I think there's is there nine or ten candidates going, right? Um, three sitting TDs. Um, so it is. It's very competitive, but um, yeah, it's busy. It's a busy campaign. And from your point of view, mm. you know. What way are you uh, approaching this? I mean, you said you learned a lot of things about leadership and, and how to how to mm. approach it. Are you using those lessons in, in how you do this, uh, how you kind of carry out this campaign? I think? <laughs> I think so. Or is it different? Or <laughs> is it different? Like I hope that? so. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose, yes, you, you would naturally. You have to. I mean, as the candidate, you're kind of, you have a campaign manager, um, you know, you, but it's up to you as the candidate to sort of build your team. When you are even considering running for anything, you build your team personally. And while you have a party um, structure, um, the party sort of sets national agenda and sets national policy objectives and things like that. Um, 
and they obviously take the lead very much in the media on the on the national issues but at local level you're very much your own boss and you very much as a candidate have to like that lead your own team work with your campaign manager and ensure that you have people around you who obviously support what you do and are willing to you know I suppose fulfill particular functions so you have people on your team who are you know good at looking after finance and might organize fundraising and and obviously there's a lot of you know things to be uh, all your you have to keep uh, an eye on all of your spending what you're spending the strict spending limits and um, that you have to adhere to you have social media so people might who might be good at that and the multimedia aspect you've drafting of literature so there's a lot of literature that goes out as well you have to have people who are, are good and able to mm. i to be honest I, I usually draft a lot of that myself because yeah. uh, that's probably a control thing on my part um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, even design of various things you know designing posters hanging posters postering teams um, and you have to make sure as well that you're not taking advantage of people and that you yeah. know you're that people um, are, I suppose that you're, you're you're showing your appreciation because there's so much work that goes in behind the scenes that people do and it's all voluntary people think that just because they're um, that you're a political party that you know you have a huge amount of money behind you and that you're paying all of these people you're not you're literally yeah. not, you know, the vast majority of things I pay for myself and um, my volunteers are, are just so good to help me out with things. How many people does it take? How many oh. people are on your team? I don't know. Um, yeah, they say it takes a village to raise a child. It takes probably similar to get someone elected. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I mean, I suppose in a core group, you might have maybe 20 in a core group but you could have 50 or 100 people who row really? in and dip wow. in and out and give you you know a couple of days canvassing or canvassing yeah. is really really important um i'm a big believer in canvassing i think it's really important to knock on somebody's door or shake somebody's hand and have the courtesy to ask them for their vote and explain why you think they should give it to you so that's my view on it some people are more focused on social media and um, i think a balance of both is is a good thing yeah the big question so who do you see as the boss at the moment so you're 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 kind of going into this uh you're in the world of Mm. of politics who are the bosses as a councillor and who will be the bosses when when you get elected as a councillor it's it's different it's slightly different at the council level you have a degree of autonomy at council level that you're not dictated to necessarily by sort of party nationally or, or okay. the sort of central party structure and um, you, ha- you do have that local autonomy so we very much are our own bosses at council level we decide our own positions on things and we vote as we see fit um, arguably I think the councillors should have more power um, but that's a different debate for a different day but um, at, when you're running for the doll I mean your boss ultimately is the party leader and um, so in my case it's Michal Martin is our party leader but you know, you wouldn't be on the phone to your boss every day or you wouldn't be getting an email from your boss every day telling you what you need to do. As a candidate, you're just expected to know what you're supposed to do and to just go out and do it. So you you are your own boss to a certain extent. Mm. You you work with your team and your campaign team to to lead the, all of the functions on the ground, you know. And you obviously liaise with party headquarters, but it's not to the extent that people might expect, I think. Who are you trying to please then, if that makes sense? If, you, if you're your own boss, then who's, who are you answerable to in your mind? Who do you think? Um, the people. I mean, I take my guidance from the doors that I knock on. And that 
gives me an insight. I mean, providing that people are honest with me and what they're saying on the yeah. doors, I take my insight from the conversations that I have with real people living in this constituency. So I talk to them and say, what are your issues? What are your concerns? That then guides me on my position on various issues, how I choose to champion those issues and work on those issues. So my bosses are the people who elect me to the council and elect and hopefully will elect me to the doll. Um, and that's really what guides me because I know what the issues are because I've knocked on thousands and thousands of doors here. I know what the issues are that are important to people. And so that steers me and that drives me. But in terms of operationalizing and the business of getting elected, you're, you're kind of your own boss. to a certain And how extent. do you get feedback from the people? Is, is it the doors? Is it's it on the, the doors? doors? Yeah, it would be the doors. And obviously you monitor online, you know, conversations that people are having, what's going on in the local media, what, you know, what people are saying, um, but really the doors is the best way because you're really plugged in. When you knock on somebody's door at home and they're telling you about the challenges they have, you know, in special needs, for example, or, you know, if they've children with additional needs that are not being, um, not getting services mm. that they need or something like that, you really get an understanding of where the shortcomings are and what, where you need to step in to try and improve. And that's, I think, I mean, for me anyway, personally, I can't speak for others, but that's where I take my guidance. How do you, how do you balance the line between you know, empathy and getting involved in somebody's story because, you mm. know, they might be dealing with something really, you know, whether it be a, a child with special needs or or, or homelessness or whatever. Mm, they, they, yeah. they might be dealing with something really that, that yeah. plucks the heartstrings. Mm. But, of course, you kind of maybe have to take a step back as well and deal with it as a, as a problem mm. that needs to be solved and be sometimes kind of very matter-of-fact about it. Do you find that hard? No, I mean, I volunteer um, also with St. Vincent de Paul, so it's, it's actually yeah, so a very similar role. Yeah. yeah, so it, w- it would be quite similar. Um, I think it's, it, it comes back to what I was saying to you earlier about the personal resilience, it, because it can be overwhelming sometimes when mm. you're hearing people suffering through the most horrendous circumstances. And I suppose sometimes in some cases you feel helpless because there's a limited amount to what you can do to help them. But I think broadly speaking I tend to be solutions focused anyway you know that's how I approach most things and I always think there has to be something that I can do to help so if I feel that I'm doing my best and um, that's how I I suppose I I sleep at night you know that if I know that I'm doing my best for somebody when I've heard I I just yeah there's there's just some horrendous things that uh, that I've heard that they they really they could keep you awake but you have to have that resilience I suppose to to try and do your best for them and where do you where do you get that resilience from where do you draw that well of energy for that from um, experience, I think, and I suppose knowledge of the system and how the system can be improved. And my frustration, I suppose, at council level is that a lot of the systemic problems that impact on real people's lives are national issues. And mm. unfortunately, to address them, you have to be in government to impact on that. So I suppose that's what's driving me in terms of the doll. Um, it's to be able to have that sort of national input, but with local impact and, and really impact on people's lives in a positive way. I, yeah, I always think we're not a big country. Mm. You know, there's only kind of give or take five million people uh, in this island, mm. which is the size of Greater Manchester. You know, mm. that's the stat that always sticks in my mind. We, you know, so we're, we're just a large city, but spread out over an yeah. island. We should be able to solve these problems. You know, that's what I always think. It, 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 it's not insurmountable, but it just needs the will. And, and yeah, I do think it needs compromise as well. I mean, mm. some people are going to have to give up things that they, they have that they, you know, for, yeah. the, for the better of, of other people. So you have a day job too. Yes. Do you think being so active 
the with the charity work with you know being on the board of directors of credit unions being on the council which seems a huge amount of work do you think that works against you if you're holding down a day job too no i i don't think it works against you i mean i'm i'm always very careful to avoid a conflict of interest i think that's really important um that you are very clearly delineated from what you do at work and your political views. So I don't allow a crossover. I don't bring my day job into my politics in the council chamber and equally so, I don't do the reverse. And I, I do think that's incredibly important to uh, to keep control of. I actually think it's an advantage because um, I think that when you're a councillor and when you're sitting on boards and things like that, you're bringing, for, for starters, you're bringing corporate governance experience into the workplace. So you have a lot of governance experience, which is really important and in, in a lot of respects is actually lacking in, in many um, businesses. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to say the, the last, I've, I've worked in a number of businesses um, which are fantastic at it, but over the years I have worked in somewhere it's been lacking and I do think that's an advantage. Um, but equally so, skills like diplomacy, being able to, as you say, you know, get that compromise um you know, get that consensus view or motivate teams as well. I mean, um, all of those things are definitely pluses in my view. Um, I think communication skills are important in any job, being able to work with people. You'll always end up working, you work with people in the council chamber that you don't agree with on various issues. You'll always, in any organisation you work in, you'll always come across people you don't agree with, but you still have to be able to work with them to achieve a common objective. Mm. So I think there's a lot of skills that you pick up in politics that are transferable no matter what you do on a daily basis. You know, that project orientation, being able to see the end goal and work towards that, um, staying very clear, you know, um, clearly on track and on target and focused, all of those kinds of things. So no, I wouldn't say um, it's a problem in my job. The biggest problem, as I said, is managing, juggling this this sort of day job and the, uh, and the council commitments. Mm. So I can actually, on that point, I would think that that could be a big problem in the future for people attracting new people into politics. Yeah. I would wonder how many of the new councillors that have been elected in 2019 will go again um, the right, next time yeah. because it's so demanding and it's in many cases not possible to maintain a full-time job with it. Yeah, well, I always think it's funny, like I've worked mm. in, in, in large organisations where if you're a, a, an inter-county GAA player, mm. you are afforded a huge amount of yeah. time for yeah. training <laughs> and things like that. Yeah, I think there might be some kind of system like that could could work well for people that we probably do, and this is my opinion, mm. uh, that we, if, if people are giving back to the community mm. to create a better society yeah. in some shape or form, whether that be through the council or something else, mm. a progressive company, a holistic company or yeah. a teal company, as yeah. they would call them, should be kind of affording that person some sort of benefit to, to do that. Yeah, I, I personally think that it's a that it's a positive, it's a plus for for any company because you're bringing mm. a you know you're bringing well-rounded people on board and um, people with diverse skill sets, and I think that's always a plus for any organisation that you have a diversity of thought, a diversity of background. Um, so I, I definitely think that's positive. But on the point about flexibility as well, more and more companies, particularly big companies, are moving towards those sort of flexible or agile. Work arrangements and I think for me that is key and I think we're going to see more and more of that in the future I actually was working on um, some legislative changes um, that I hope to see introduced in the next few years mm. um, that will really benefit people and that that would ultimately the idea behind that is they do it in the UK and they do it in Australia and the idea is that 
legally employees would be able to ask, so it's called a right to request, that you could ask your employer for uh, flexible work arrangements to facilitate whether it's kids, whether it's sporting commitments, whatever it is. And the employer would come back and say, if they were to refuse it, they would say, um, they would have to give a business case for saying no. So it's not forcing employers, but the idea is that employers would be thinking um, about how they might organise work differently. Yeah, I think one of the challenges with with agile work and, and with mm. flexible work is it becomes always on work. Yes, yes, And, and I think, you know, we, we've got remote working yeah. and things like that. And next thing, everybody's supposed to be available. Yeah. I mean, I, I, That's I, I've recently yeah. been reading about it myself mm. um, um, and, and people talk about, oh, well, no, we, we operate a flexible working mm. environment, which means you're flexible mm. constantly. So if yeah. I need you at Sunday, you yeah. know, at nine o'clock, you'll be flexible for me, yeah? Yeah. And that way, you know, I'll, I'll give you a bit of extra time, you know, during the week. Yes. And that's not good for our mental health because then we don't switch off at yeah. all. Um, so I think it has to be done well, for sure. Absolutely. There is a balance to be struck. And I think France have brought in legislation around this. Um, they've sort of banned out of hours emails and things like that. And I definitely yes, think that's yeah. good. You see, for me, it's one-sided at the moment. Flexible work, flexible working hasn't permeated all sectors or all businesses. And I think at the moment, yet because people have, say, emails on their phone now, they are expected to answer them at all times. Whereas I think if you if you flatten it and you level the playing field where people do get that additional flexibility, it's not yeah. so bad. Like for it, it works for me personally. I don't mind being always on. It's kind of the an occupational hazard for a counsellor. But I do think that that's a real challenge for people and there has to be um, a limit. I think it should be legislated for that there's a limit, to be honest. I think we, I think we need to uh, dream big, uh, even mm. bigger. I, w- I would kind of say, I, w- I would be a big advocate mm. for the four-day week yeah. because um, you actually, people will put in the effort if they know they've got, you know, they'll, they'll put in just as Limited much work time, over yeah. four days as they will in five. Yeah. And the other side of it is, is like, we're after making leaps and bounds in mm. technology. I mean, crazy leaps and bounds. I mean, if you think of your grandparents, mm. if you told them what you did for a job, they'd be like, so what do you, sorry, you don't work then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they, it's, it's just crazy. The, the email, the internet, the, the cars that we have, the transport that we have, all of this stuff is supposed to make our lives better. Yeah. But we haven't cashed that chip in yet. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, the currency has to be time. That's Completely. what we get back. Yeah. To give to the society, to give to the community, to give to your family, to give mm-hmm. to your friends. I mean, loneliness is on the rise. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That, that actually yeah. has, a, has a problem in yeah. the country. And that's because do people have time to actually connect anymore? You know, yeah. and I know I sound a bit like a hippie here, but I'm kind of saying that actually no, if we give people back time, valid. I think yeah. they might give us more back as a society too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the conversations around the four day working week, there's definitely merit to that. I'm, I wouldn't be against that at all because I think that I like like what you're saying. You know, if you're if you know that you've limited time to get something done, you'll be incredibly productive. Whereas if you know that you have yeah. the full week, you might kind of push it out till the end of the week. That's it, yeah. So I people stretch their there's kind definitely of an argument for that. All right, yeah. Um, and it is interesting to see that argument being pushed now, and that. Pe- but I suppose the approach is changing. People are um, people are thinking outside the box now, and that's brilliant because. Yeah. The, the reason that we work nine to five is actually a product of the industrial revolution. Yeah, yeah. That was, you know, 200 years, years ago. ago yeah. Absolutely. And it was driven by daylight and the fact that nobody <laughs> had phones. And, you know, these kind of constraints that do not constrain us anymore. So exactly. like you're saying, technology is the great leveler. We can use that and leverage that to change how we work and make people's lives better. But it, 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 we have to be 
have our eye increasingly on the ball in terms of making sure that it doesn't mean, like you say, that people end up just working 20 hours a day and that they can never switch off. Because you have to be able to plug out. You have to be able to unplug. Yeah, yeah, it's, absolutely. you know, it's, like you say, it's detrimental to, to mental health other, otherwise. So this is the Good Boss, Bad Boss podcast. Mm. And you've had an experience of bosses in every uh, kind of a, a range of different industries mm. now. Can you think of an experience with a bad boss or can you tell us about a bad boss that you've had no names of course for legal reasons that you you would you would <laughs> you would say geez you know I never want to be that type of boss yeah I have I've had a lot of bosses actually I've worked in a lot of sectors over the years and I've had some excellent bosses and I've had some really awful bosses Um, I think I'll start with the worst bosses. I think the worst bosses that I've had, and I won't name names, so don't worry, is um, would be people who micromanage. So they spend a lot of time recruiting really, really good, really talented people, and then they micromanage them and don't allow them any space to bring those skills to the table. So I think that's sort of counterproductive and it makes people feel stifled and ultimately they leave. Um, but also just not taking people's views on board. Um, I think I've seen bosses over the years as well refusing good people, sort of flexible working arrangements, and then those people have just left and gone elsewhere. Mm. Um, those kinds of things, I, but most importantly, I think, is treating people with, 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 sorry, with respect and empowering people. So to, to move that on in terms of um, who's a good boss, the best bosses that I've had are bosses that empower you. So they put a huge amount of time into identifying people that are perfect for the role with the ideal skill sets, and then they let them do their job, let them get on with it. And working collaboratively with them, you know, ensuring that their ideas are heard at the very top and that they, that they understand at all times What's the purpose here? What's the purpose of my role? How do I fit into this organization? And um, how do I fit into the grand scheme of things in terms of achieving its objectives? That's important to communicate to people and to make sure that people understand that at all times. Because if you don't understand your value in an organization, you won't be very motivated. So the best bosses that I've had will communicate that very clearly. So you'll know what your role is, what you have to do to achieve it, and where you fit within the team. And then, you know, just good communicators. I think communication is absolutely key. Um, for motivating teams so, so having having been a boss and having be, having had bosses that's for me they're the most important things and in in terms of the the difference between uh, the the normal corporate working world mm. and the political world mm. is there a difference between the bosses and their behavior it's it's a different dynamic you know it's not like a boss relationship in a in a sort of a linear kind of you know if you look at an organization chart and there's like a, a linear organization chart in a cor- in the corporate world um you don't have like KPIs your KPIs are to kind of you know get elected and do a good job <laughs> you yeah. know um but so it, the dynamic is very different they're hard to very hard to compare but no equ- i would say the same things apply good communication collaborative working style ensuring that everybody is bought into the vision and understands the vision and the objectives and then works hard towards that end but empower your people and let them go off and do a good job and I feel that as a candidate you know I like the idea that I can work in my constituency on behalf of the constituents and that I'm not sort of being dictated to there's there's a line that's often trotted out in politics oh you're being dictated to by you know party headquarters you're not it's actually your job to feed upwards to feed upwards to um, the top, the head of a party and to the leadership of a party, what the issues are on the ground and what's of importance to people. And then 
it, it's de- it's democracy. So you know you get a democratic consensus then on how resources can be spent and how uh, mm. you know how policy objectives. Can Do you think come that's something that corporates could learn from political parties in general? That it's it's from the ground up. I mean, because you know political Possibly. parties, regardless of the party, mm. they can't yeah. survive without the grassroots, as it's called. Yeah, I mean that that is yeah. the the lifeblood of Absolutely. it. You know, the, the yeah, people who do so. go canvassing with you, and they they're they're from that kind of community as well. So they can't survive. Mm. What could corporates learn from the political system? I think yeah, there's definitely a lesson to be learned there in terms of listening more um, and that sort of feed forward, you know, idea of listening to people. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say on the bottom rung, but listening to people on the ground um, who work in an organisation and what are the, what's their lived experience and how can things be improved? Because quite often, you know, even internal com- communications can be just top down. And like, you know, that's just an echo chamber then. You know, you're not, you're not getting the real insights. Um, and I don't think you're, you're learning the lessons that you probably need to learn to be better at what you do. Um, if you t- if you adopt that approach, so yeah, I think listening is is definitely a good uh, a good a good thing for companies to do and corporates in particular. You will see a lot of the good corporates who are good at this will have um, opportunities for you know increased engagement for people working um, in big companies where they can you know I don't know whether it's surveys or you know or wh- or what the mechanism would be, but there are a variety of mechanisms that can be used to to listen to people. But yeah, it's it's really important that you're feeding upwards. And then, Car, you know, on the flip side, mm-hmm. what do you think? politics can learn from the corporate world um a good governance <laughs> i think good <laughs> governance is important in politics i think politics can learn more about being a little bit more structured maybe and um, there is an element where i suppose it's probably a resourcing thing as well that you know in politics um typically you don't have a huge amount of resources to deliver for like if you elected as a td for example in this constituency you have ultimately ninety thousand odd constituents and you as a TD, you might have you know two staff, so you're you're serving a lot of people's needs yeah. with very limited resources. Um, so maybe if there was more of a conversation around how we structure to deliver locally, it might be done a bit better. But I think that's that's probably something that uh, somebody further up the food chain can <laughs> can Consultant. work to address. <laughs> All your experience in a, in a vast uh, kind of array of, uh, you know, situations, whether it be elections or, or working in the corporate world mm. and, and even just been out on the doorsteps. What are the lessons that you would say uh, are really important in your experience now, in, in your crazy kind of adventure that you've been on over the past 10 years? I think what I would say to bosses is that communication is key to being a good boss and it's listening, you know, listening, you've two ears and one mouth, as they say, and this is a reason that, you know, it's designed with that uh, ratio. Um, So listening is key and then communicating the objectives of your team and your organization to your employees, because sometimes bosses can can think that everybody understands why they're being asked to do a particular task and they may not. Mm. So if everybody is bought into that, it's easier to... um, get I suppose to motivate people but to to get a better team cohesion from that I think and so communication is one of the key the key aspects for me in in terms of leadership and leading teams um but also it just having good people and empowering empowering them and trusting them to do the work um that they signed up to do and I think that's probably a big problem that bosses encounter as well is that you know lack of ability to delegate that you know the kind of control um so 
yeah that, that's what I would say to people too and that's I mean that's how I tend to approach teams in in both you know the corporate world and in uh, and in, in in my political life I'm lucky to have excellent teams in both who mm. I work with collaboratively and uh, and have very happy to work with them what are your guiding leadership principles what are the principles that you would nail to the wall of your constituency office here saying no this is what I stand for as a leader yeah fu- funnily enough I actually did um, my my master's thesis was on leadership communication so <laughs> it was it was always an area that was of interest to me because it kind of married sort of strategy and that kind of personal element of politics you know what makes a good leader and for me I did a huge amount of research um, for my thesis on this and the most important thing that came out of it was actually empathy so understanding people so empathy fairness as well is another approach I think as a boss you have to be you know fair try and take all bias out of absolutely anything and to try and see things from somebody else's perspective so empathy fairness and and justice I think are, are really important um, and just to stick by your guiding principles you know if you if you have those as your guiding principles and um, no matter what you do you're you know you, you'll generally have the, be- the better outcome it's not always possible to do the right thing but I think if you're guided by those things you'll you'll generally end up somewhere along the way thank you very much Deirdre this has been a fascinating conversation and I definitely know more about it than I did before uh, best of luck on maybe the you 8th might of run February. yourself one day <laughs> oh, yeah I might be inspired now yeah yeah only president maybe I might, I might, might th- think big uh, somewhere where I just get to cut ribbons <laughs> that'll, that'll be fine best of luck on the 8th of February it should be very interesting to see how it all plays it out and I hope all your hard work pays off thank you so much Stephen thanks for having me I really like the way Deirdre was clear on her own guiding principles of empathy, fairness and justice. I think we don't place enough emphasis on decision making through values in the working world and if we did, things would be better. It's easy to get cynical about politics and question the motives of others, but if you believe in making a difference to your world, then you have a responsibility to get up and do something. Whether it is volunteering at a local club, protesting for a cause or running for election. Your world Local, national and international needs good leaders. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us the greatest favour and share it with all of your friends and colleagues on Facebook or LinkedIn or even just through good old-fashioned email. Give it a five-star rating on iTunes too, as that helps promote the podcast to others. As usual, if you have a guest you'd like to hear from or an industry you'd like me to find out more about, just mail me at stephen at stephennaughton.com. You can find more from me on Instagram at Good Boss Bad Boss Podcast, and I'll be back next month with another Good Boss Bad Boss guest. Until then, goodbye.